0: Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Good morning, Church. Uh, Happy Advent, and uh, it's the first week of December, and looking forward to celebrating Christmas with all of you. Uh, Those of you who haven't heard, uh, my voice is like this because uh, we're just recovering from COVID. Our whole family got it, thankfully. Noah and Erica are doing okay. Uh, You could tell that I'm still feeling it a little bit, but hopefully it'll last me through the length of the sermon and uh, with the audio, hopefully mixing, it could be heard totally fine. Uh, But yeah, just wanted to wish all of you a happy Advent. And as we get into, again, we're going back into the book of Mark, looking into the proclamation of the series called Witness that we've been talking about. And hopefully it's gonna be a really great time for us to reconnect with Mark and all the things that he has to say about who Jesus is, as we also enter into this new season. So turn your Bibles to Mark six. We're gonna look at starting at chapter uh, six, verse seven, all the way through chapter seven, into it a little bit. And uh, just as a recap, Mark one through six, we talked all about Jesus and all the miracles that he did all throughout uh, his ministry uh, in his early days. And uh, there were so many different things that happened. He interacted with sinners. He had confrontations with the Pharisees. Um, he taught several parables about the kingdom of God. Uh, he, there were specific healing miracles that he did. But really, the central question was, who, who is Jesus? And who is the Son of God? And what was it that he came to proclaim? It was the kingdom of God that he came to proclaim. And as we pick up in this chapter, we'll notice that this theme still is focused on Jesus, but it shifts. to now, what does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to be his disciple? And if this is who Jesus is, then what does that mean for, for us as everyday Christians who are aspiring to be like him? If there's any topic that should really resonate with us, it should be about following Jesus. Uh, for those of you who have been following Jesus for a long, long time, or those of you who have been following Jesus for just a month or two, or maybe just a year or two, I think one thing that we can all agree is that following Jesus is not easy, it's not simple, it's not straightforward. I think most of us all have some kind of desire, and even as we talked about in the past couple weeks, uh, there are so many different areas of our relationship with Jesus that we haven't quite understood perfectly, and it makes it really difficult to live out in a genuine way. For example, work is worship. How many of us we find work as an easy place to follow Jesus in? Last week we talked about persecution. How many of us are excited for persecution? I hopefully none, none of your hands are raised, but. The, the real question is, if Jesus is so difficult to follow, then how could we ever possibly follow him in the long run? And that's exactly Mark's point. Mark's point is that following Jesus is the task of every single disciple. But it is so difficult that without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that there's no way you could actually follow him for the rest of your days. And if there's one thing that I want us to remember is that simply following Jesus is impossible as long as Jesus stays impersonal. If you do not make Jesus a personal relationship that you have, then there's no way you're going to be able to genuinely follow Jesus. And I want to challenge us with the sermon this morning. For some of us, we think that we've been following Jesus our whole lives, but maybe, just maybe, we haven't. We haven't actually lived up to the call that he's called us to. And we haven't have a genuine relationship with him. And hopefully this challenges us not to question our faith, but to deepen it and refine it so that it gets to a point where we can genuinely say, I'm following you wherever, Lord, you want me to go. Now, well, hopefully you've turned to Mark 6. And uh, there's going to be three things that we're going to talk about about what following Jesus entails, what you have to have in order to follow Jesus. The first one, is you have to have an unpopular mission. Mark 6, verse 7, we're going to read it all the way through verse 30. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod Herod, heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Another said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, of whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. We'll just pause there for a moment. And uh, here we see that Mark, he does a very interesting thing. He starts to explain the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, this is really interesting to notice the aspects of the mission and what he told them to bring or what not to bring and that tells you something about the mission that he encountered them uh, a couple of things that we noticed immediately in the first couple of verses was that he told them not to bring anything uh, they weren't to bring any provision no no uh, no no copper coins no extra tunic uh, they were just to bring a staff and sandals on their feet which typical clothes for a traveler they were to be entirely dependent on the people that housed them. When they were entering a town, they were to stay there until they left that town. And uh, for those towns that were not hospitable, they were to shake off the dust of their feet until they moved on. Now, in verse 30, uh, we notice that it ends the mission abruptly uh, after this whole story about John the Baptist. And I, I just wanna show something interesting. If you read verses, the first couple of verses, all the way through uh, verse 30, and you take out the whole section on John the Baptist, you'll notice it flows exceedingly well. Uh, Mark 6, 12 to 13, I'm just gonna pick up in the last couple, in verse 30, it says this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many of those who were sick and healed them. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So you'll notice that what Mark does is he tells us the mission that Jesus sent the disciples on he shows us at the end how they came back after their mission. And he inserts this huge chunk of text about John the Baptist and how Herod had imprisoned him and beheaded him at the request of Herodias. And that's, that is really like a sandwich that uh, buffers the, the mission that Jesus sent his disciple. And the question is, well, why does, why does Mark do this? Why does he seem to take a pause as he's sending the disciples on this already very incredibly difficult journey that was probably unpopular with the disciples, why did he do that? And Mark is trying to tell us something about the mission. He's not having a side, and he's not distracting himself and distracting the reader to go on to some other topic. He's telling us something about the mission that he was calling his disciples to and he was calling the readers to. He gives us a clue when he alludes to John the Baptist way in the beginning in chapter 1. I want to read it for us. Mark 1 verse 4. It says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Read that word together. Repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John came in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance, an unpopular message that no one wanted to hear. And along with that, as We see John, now the content of what Mark tells us about John and Herod and the interaction, what happened and why was John in prison? He was in prison, why? Because he was what? Calling people to repent. And part of calling people to repent is telling them what? The truth. The truth about what? Their sins. John was telling Herod that he ought not to marry Herodias. Why? Because Herodias had been his brother's wife. And in Jewish law and Jewish custom, that was not allowed. And so Herodias hated him. Uh, Herod didn't want to kill him, but he wanted to keep him under guard because the people thought he was holy. And uh, because of John's mission, what happened? John had a mission, clearly from God. And because of a mission, his mission, he was imprisoned. He was persecuted, and ultimately, he was beheaded. Now, if that doesn't give us a little bit of a shock, uh, he 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 emphasizes that this is what the disciples heard, and. This is what the disciples, John's disciples, ended up doing. They took his body back and buried him. And if you know anything about a disciple, a disciple does what? He lives and follows after the teacher. And if you know anything about the teacher's fate, that oftentimes that would be associated with the student, the disciple's fate. And if John the Baptist was clearing the way, preparing the way for Jesus, John the Baptist was saying, I'm here to follow Jesus, then those who follow Jesus ought to share a similar fate as John the Baptist. Jesus is saying, the mission I'm proclaiming, the mission I'm sending you, the unpopular mission that I've sent you on, could be resulting in the same fate as John the Baptist. You could be in prison, you could be tortured, you could be beheaded, it could end in death. It's an unpopular mission to go without any necessary provision to preach a message that people don't wanna hear, just like John the Baptist, to suffer consequences and possibly death. And that unpopular mission for us in our day and age, what does that look like? It means maybe we don't know where our needs and provisions are gonna come from, but we still have to follow Jesus. Maybe it means that we have to be possibly not sure making decisions that aren't gonna guarantee our worldly success, but still we have to follow Jesus. It might mean that we might not always live a nice and comfortable life that guarantees us this wonderful life, but it might lead us to our death. Now, that's hard to swallow, and that is certainly an unpopular mission. Who wants to follow a Jesus like that? Who wants to live a Christian life like that? And it's, it's, it's like someone told, and those of you who are like World Cup watchers, it's like someone from... Saudi Arabia told, you know, go preach the good news of Saudi Arabia and the kingdom to Argentina. Of course, thankfully, Argentina is in, you know, in the 16. But it was an unpopular message, an unpopular mission. And and I'm just wondering how many of us, we've, we've misconstrued this Christian faith to meet our needs and we've convoluted it with what we think is right, what the world's mission is that meets our selfish needs we we confuse that with Jesus's mission, and and that we're we're like okay, God, I'm gonna get provision for myself, and I'm gonna have Jesus on the side. I'm gonna get you know success for myself, and I'm gonna have Jesus on the side. I'm gonna get a nice comfortable life for myself, and I'm gonna have Jesus on the side. And Jesus is saying that's not my mission. He's saying my mission's unpopular. My mission's gonna require sacrifice. My mission's gonna require surrender. My mission's gonna require. Uh, possibly things that don't look successful in your eyes. And my mission might lead you to death and discomfort and things that you don't want to do. And if you're trying to get all the best of both worlds, then you're not on the right mission. I want to ask us, what kind of mission are we on today? Are, are we, do we trust God with our needs or are we idolizing security and provision so highly that we're not able to give generously to his mission? I mean, thank God, and praise Him for so many of you who gave so generously on Giving Tuesday. But what about all the other weeks of the year? Do we give generously? Because we know and we trust God with our provision. Do we trust God with our success? Or is every single time someone something fails in our lives, do we get anxious and worried and nervous and flustered? Do we try to take control again? Or do we trust God with our life? Or every single time something gets uncomfortable, we retreat or we, we avoid, we, we pull back because we don't want to rock the boat. What kind, of, what kind of mission are we on? Do we really trust him that if we're on his mission, that he's going to give us above and beyond everything that we need? Maybe not in the way that we imagine and maybe not in the way that will be popular, but that is going to be the best for us. Following Jesus means that we're on an unpopular mission. The second thing that following Jesus means is that we have, uh, we're, we're almost required to face unreasonable challenges. We're facing unreasonable challenges. Being pushed beyond our limits, being beyond our own ability. These are all things that Jesus calls us toward. And it seems unreasonable. And we see this in uh, the next couple of verses, 31 to 56. It's a little bit longer, these passages, but uh, let's just try to focus and uh, pay attention through it. Verse 31, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the hours now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themso- themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to <coughs> and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed them to the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart it is I. do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. But wherever he came in, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. We'll just pause there as we talk about the unreasonable challenges and and almost demands that Jesus has on those who follow. Following Jesus means that sometimes we will encounter unreasonable challenges and demands that Jesus himself places before us and his disciples. There's three scenes in this whole section, and I know that it's it's a longer passage, so I'm going to just give us a broad swipes and overviews of these three different scenes. The first scene is feeding the 5,000. I know this is very familiar for for many of us, but I wanna highlight a couple things. After he sends out the disciples on this unpopular mission, just keep in mind, they already went out, no cloak, no food, no tunic, just a staff and a sandal. He sent them out, they come back, they're tired, they're hungry, and he says, come rest a while because you haven't even had time to eat. And uh, so after they're going to this desolate place, supposedly, where there's no one there, the, the whole crowd in the region comes, and, and they, they storm, and they, they follow him, and they're like yearning to meet Jesus and hear his teaching. And what does Jesus do? He has, he has compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so as Jesus sits there and teaches them, what are the disciples do? They're not just sitting there resting by themselves. They're, they're serving. They're out there. They're ministering to people. And at some point where it says the hour is late, uh, they come back to Jesus and they're like, well, it's time to send them away. And it, Jesus' response is so interesting. They're like, send them away, give them something to eat, and it, which sounds like a reasonable request. And he doesn't even turn a cheek and he just says, you give them something to eat. I mean, if I don't know about you, if, if I were them, I'd be like, what are you talking about? And we don't know in scripture if their response was sarcastic or not they shall we buy 200 denarii worth of bread. 200 denarii was, you know, all, nearly a year's wages, uh, six months to a year's wages in that place, in that time. We, we don't know if he was being sarcastic or the disciples were responding sarcastically or not. 200 denarii was uh, six months to a year's worth of wages. And, and that was an incredible amount. I mean, even if they had that amount of money, it almost seemed like it was unreasonable to spend that amount. And not only that, like could only those handful of disciples possibly buy enough bread with that much money, haul it back, haul it back and defeat all people. It, it would just, it just seemed ludicrous to them and it didn't make any sense. And it comes off as very unreasonable. And, and I think for us, you know, oftentimes when we think about our Christianity, we think about, you know, oh God, you're supposed to give us a, a life that is reasonable, that makes sense, that, that. Uh, in my mind, I can compute and understand and I can follow because it makes sense logically to myself. But God doesn't operate that way. Jesus doesn't operate this way. In fact, who does Jesus hand the bread to? When he, when he, says, he says, you know, he says, forget the disciples, forget, you know, the denarii. says, how many loaves do you have? And then we know the rest of the story. He breaks the bread, feeds the miracle. But it's very interesting. When you look closely, he commands them to sit down He breaks the loaves. And what does he do? He gives them to whom? The disciples. He gives them to the disciples. And guess who has to distribute the bread? The disciples have to distribute the bread. Jesus is taking his unreasonable challenge and saying, I am the fulfillment of the unreasonable challenge. And you are simply the channel that it is being shared through. Now just hold that one moment before we apply it to our lives. I want us to go to the other scenes to really hit home here because many times we just focus on feeding the 5,000, but I think the next two sections are connected. The second scene is straining at the oars. So after the feeding of the 5,000, after this unreasonable request, Jesus is not just up one level. He says, you disciples, go to the lake. You know, you're, some of you are fishermen, so you should be able to navigate the boat pretty well. I'm gonna dismiss the crowds. I'm gonna go pray. And then um, keep in mind, the disciples still haven't had a rest. So they're rowing the boat, they're crossing. And Jesus is praying, and then he sees them. He comes at the third watch, and most commentators will say that's roughly, you know, a uh, three, four a.m. in the morning. So you've been laboring, you've been serving, you've been dying, you haven't rest, you haven't eaten, and you are now rowing your minds out. And then the wind is blowing against you. And uh, I just want to translate that 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 um, that phrase where where it says. Um, He says they were making headway painfully. I think that's an understatement. In the NIV, this is what it says, straining at the oars. In the HCSB, it says battered as they rode. They they were like literally exhausted, overwhelmed, unsure what to do. They were probably, you know, and this is just my own thought. They're probably just cursing Jesus in their minds. Like, why did Jesus send this? Why is Jesus so unreasonable? Why did he leave us? Why did this? Why that? And again, another unreasonable request that it seems like Jesus did it again. And here Jesus comes, and what what did it say? He says he meant to pass them by. It says he meant to skip them. He he, He really believed that they could have done it. They were able, the instruction they had given them, which was to go over to the other side, they were able to accomplish it. And he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him, they thought he was a ghost. And with compassion, what happens? He goes into the boat to meet them. Now what's 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 the reassurance? Now, <coughs> I think what Mark finally does in this last scene, which is healing many at Gennesaret, is contrast the 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 unreasonable feeling of the disciples with the rest of the crowds. Because if you read the last of the section, you see all the crowds, and you see this all throughout Mark, but. Here, the crowds are actually portrayed in a very positive light. They're bringing all these people, all these sick to Jesus. And as soon as they could just touch him, they would be healed. What, what great faith that they have. And here you have these stories of Jesus' disciples totally contrasted, lacking faith, not knowing what's going on, feeling, uh, you know, if I were to read into this a little bit, could almost feel like they're bitter. Jesus, why would you ask us to do this? Jesus, why would you ask us to do that? What do the crowds do you? We're following after you. We're doing all these things. We've served all the time. And why are you asking us to feed all these people? Why can't we come and rest for a while? Why are you asking us to row across the boat with these winds and these waves that we can't we can't even do? And, and and they didn't know this, but you were about to pass us by. And it's interesting that in both situations, what does Jesus do? He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't smack them over the head, but he says, you're missing the point. He says, you think that you have to fulfill all these unreasonable challenges and requests and demands on your own. When the only way that you can genuinely fulfill them is if you believe and you trust that the one that you're with is greater than the difficulties and the challenges that you face. Who was the one who ultimately broke the bread? It was Jesus. Who was the one that calmed the winds and the waves? It was Jesus. Jesus. And not only did he calm the winds and the waves, what did he do when they were frightened and they were terrified? He said in the ESV, verse 50, it says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In the NLT, it says, do not be afraid. He said, take courage. I am here. I am here. He said, all you need is me. All you need is a personal relation. All you need is trust. All you need is knowing that I am with you. And The one that hits the head on the coffin is in the Amplified. It says, take courage. It is I. And let's say that bold in the parentheses together. I am. Stop being afraid. I am. I am. That harkens back to Moses. That harkens back to Yahweh. I am who I am. The the self-revelation disclosure of God to the Israelite people. Jesus is invoking that. He's saying, I am God. I am the son of God. I am with you." I I was really frustrated with God this past week, giving me COVID, you know, whole family, uh, just making it really inconvenient. And then also this, the week being the week that I have to, I'm preaching a a message, pastor said it's traveling in Korea. And uh, I mean, at first I was like, okay, I'll just recover and it'll be a couple days. But as soon as I started losing my voice, I was like, God, come on, (laughs) kind of unreasonable God gives me COVID the week I'm supposed to prepare a sermon and not only that takes away my voice. And uh a couple of, you know, literally, I mean up to today, I, I couldn't speak. I, I, I told uh, my my uh, my co servants and other people that were praying for me in my life group, I told them I sound I sound like a like a, a, a Batman, a horse Batman or like a a toad croaking. And uh, I, I really couldn't get anything out except for like a whisper and maybe like a really low hoarse voice. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I think just out of my frustration, I, I just started really just getting angry at God, really frustrated. And in that frustration, I, God just goes kind of like, hey, hello, Like, yeah, have, you, have you thought about speaking to me? Have you, you know, I've, I've been asking for prayer, God. I've been doing all this kind of stuff, but have you personally thought about spending time with me? Have you prayed? I'm like, God, yeah, I've been praying, I've been complaining, you know, have you really been coming before me and spending time with me and knowing who I am? And I said, okay, I did my soap. I hadn't done soap for several days this week. COVID was my excuse. And as I was was sitting there doing my soap, I was reading through Chronicles and uh, spending time in prayer and just connecting with God and just him reminding me how good he is, how faithful he is, regardless of my circumstances. And, um, you know, w- within like 30 minutes to an hour later, uh, which is today, I my 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 throat just just immediately started ha- feeling better. Uh, I I was like I can kind of talk, and I wasn't sure if my voice sounded right because I don't know what my voice sounds like anymore. I had to ask Erica like, does my voice sound okay? She's like, uh-huh, not normal, but it sounds like doable. Sounds like you could actually talk and, and say something. So, I don't know if it's like ibuprofen, I took an extra dose, or if it's like the Holy Spirit. I'm believing it's both. But after I spent time with him, after I personally encountered him, after I realized he's with me and he's connected to me, this unreasonable demand that I was so angry about all of a sudden became something that I don't know even how I'm recording this right now. If you asked me three hours ago, I would have been like, not possible. But this unreasonable demand, God, it, you, you've, you've overcome, you you enabled. It. You allowed this to possibly happen. And, and, I, and, and I, for me, I'm just like, God, I don't even know how this is possible, but it's, it's here and, and this unreasonable de- demand is not met through my own ability. It is met through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, because what? Jesus is here. He is I am. He is the I am who is with us personally through all of our trials, difficulties, and challenges. Now I'm wondering, I'm going to ask us, what are the unreasonable challenges demands that it seems like God is putting on on our lives in our hearts right now? What are the things that seem so difficult and so daunting and so impossible that He's saying, I need you to do this, but you can't do it unless I'm with you? Is it that that relationship you need to reconcile? Is it a, a missions project that you need to go on? Is it uh, an opportunity that you need to close the door, but you need to wait for something else to happen because you have no idea how it's going to happen? Are there other things like like you feeling overwhelmed and burnt out because of doing all these things for God? When you're like, God, where's the energy? But really, it's, you haven't spent time with him. You haven't been personal and close and deep with him. I'm wondering, what are the unreasonable challenges that you face that you haven't let God be personal to you in your life? These things, everything, following Jesus, all of these things will be impossible unless God is personal to you. Hopefully you had a good discussion. Uh, We talked about how we, as we follow Jesus, we are on an unpopular mission. We are faced with unreasonable challenges. Last thing that following Jesus entails is unorthodox values. And we're gonna read Mark uh, chapter seven, verses one through 23. Again, it's a little bit longer, but... The Pharisees and the scribes asked them, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but even with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We see that Jesus is taking the orthodox values of the Pharisees and the Jews, flipping them 180 degrees upside down on their heads and now giving us a brand new set of values, a brand new set of way of looking at scripture and tradition that the disciples weren't even sure of. Uh, Mark shifts from the previous two uh, points and now turns to a conflict with the Pharisees. And at that time, the Pharisees' teachings were considered orthodox. There was another party called the Sadducees but predominantly the Pharisees had more influence uh, and the Jews were the ones who would follow the, what they called the oral tradition, which was handed down after generations of these famous rabbis who would interpret the Torah, which is the Jewish law, which is generally known as the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy and, you know, some of the books after that. And they would turn this and uh, add instructions on top of that for how to specifically obey it. And Jesus, what he's, uh, he confronts the Pharisees with his own scripture. Isaiah 29, he, he says, you know, their their people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So he's essentially saying, you're not really from God. These laws, this old tradition, is not really from God. It's man-made. You're not honoring God. You're honoring yourselves. Now, one of the two examples that he uses to bolster his point, the first is ceremonial washing. Uh, interesting, for it says, for all of the Pharisees, or for the Pharisees, all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. This comes from Exodus 30: 19 to 28. I'm not gonna read it, but essentially they took that verse and a couple others in Leviticus and says, oh, because the priests have to wash before they do their rituals, then this should be expanded to all Jews. Uh, and it's just better to be safe than sorry, but eventually that became law. Uh, if you don't wash like all Jews, not, not only if you're a priest, then you're sinning. But that wasn't what the original law said. The second example he uh, mentioned was Corbin, which was uh, a, a Jewish expression for uh, something dedicated to God. And he uses this example of no longer giving gifts to your father and mother. And very interestingly, Corbin was the, the concept of deferred giving, setting something aside for God or for a religious purpose that once you die, you pass away, then that thing will be given to God or for that spiritual aspect. But as long as you're alive, you could still make use of it. Uh, now that became a very selfish thing in those days. And I think this uh, T.W. Manson, oh, a commentator, he, he puts it very succinctly. This is what he says about Corbin and that oral tradition. He says, A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. And Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, you're preventing your mother and father from benefiting from the things that you have by giving it to God. And in many ways, it was a very selfish, a very uh, crude act that was masked with the spirituality. And it's totally against the will of God. And, And the crazy part was that both of these things, the ceremonial washing the court, this was commonly accepted by all the Jews. If you remember verse 3, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews accept this. They all practice these things. And not only that, it says some of when they were accusing the disciples of not washing their hands, he says some of your disciples, meaning some of the disciples actually did agree with the Pharisees and all the other Jews. And presumably the, the other disciples who didn't, either they weren't good Jews or they didn't know better. And so in verse 14, when uh, Jesus addressed the crowd, he tells this parable. And then in verse 18, the disciples ask him, like, what does it mean? What, what does it mean that um, <coughs> what comes, what goes into a person doesn't defile him and what comes out of the person defiles him? And the disciples are asking him, like, well, what does this mean? And Jesus is like, don't you understand? And the focus and the last word, yes, it's about the Pharisees. And yes, it's about their traditions. But the focus is on the disciples. The focus is on what does it mean to follow Jesus. And Mark is saying what it means to follow Jesus is to have unorthodox values. Values that are so different, so contrary to your family, your culture, your society, your everything. And and it's very, a little bit concerning that even the disciples, Mark says their hearts were hardened. They did not understand. They didn't, they didn't, comprehend they didn't have faith they didn't put two and two together that when you follow jesus you cannot follow the tradition you cannot follow the the authority structure that you're so used to you cannot follow what your family you cannot follow your intuition and that's the 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 challenge for so many is we trust in so many of those things we trust in our family we trust in the things everything that we've done with our family growing that's normal and that's right and that's what's supposed to be done the authority structure that we're used to that's how it should be done The the culture that we've grown up, that's normal and that's the way it should always be done. So it should be done. And we never once stop to question, Hmm, God, maybe, maybe is this wrong? Maybe is this not the value that you called us to? Maybe the way society portrays everything is not correct. And Jesus is saying, you have to give up all those things. And you have to, you have to leave all those things. You have to forego, you have to forfeit all those things to follow me. Because the values and the principles that I stand by are based on none of those things except for God, God alone. And it's to the point where all you have is Jesus. All you have, nothing else. And, and Jesus is saying, you, you have to give up everything, all your values, except for the ones that come from Jesus Christ, from following me. And, and the crazy thing is, uh, at the end, he says, at, You know, out of the heart of a man comes sexual immorality. All these things sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. And maybe some of them were um, proud and they didn't like their that. honor. Oh, that's not me. But for any disciple that was honest with themselves, they're like, Oh, that's, I had that. I coveted. I was sexually immoral. I was like that. I was like that. And One of the deepest values that they had to give up was what? Their own sense of accomplishment, their own sense of pride, their own sense of security with who they were as God's chosen people. They had to give up that possibly they would be uh, eternally with him. Because if what Jesus is saying is true about defilement, what comes out of man is what defiles him, then all of them are condemned under sin. And that was the that, that perhaps is the scariest part for us to possibly accept, is that we are actually broken and sinful and messed up people. There, there's nothing good about us. That's one of the hardest values for us to accept. That is one of the most unorthodox values to accept in our day and age today. I mean, there's a lot. There's a, a, so many other ones that you could probably list down, and this culture is not like that, and this culture isn't biblical like that but the one that's coming across all cultures is that somehow we are all believing and thinking that we are not that bad. And Jesus is saying here clearly, no, all of us are bad. For everything that comes out of us is evidence a symptom of the deeper core sin and disease issue that operates inside our hearts and inside our minds and inside our everything. And for us to accept that crushes us, for us to realize like, man, I am a horrible, I'm terrible, I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm I am totally just without hope, that crushes us. And the only way that you can have an unorthodox value like that is if you believe one, is that if Jesus is the one who is with you and who cleanses you, and who's the one who stands in your place, I mean that that's the good news, right? It's it's impossible to have an unorthodox value like that. It's impossible to meet all the unreasonable demands that Jesus has on us. It's impossible to be on the unpopular mission genuinely without compromise. But Jesus doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He says, I'm with you. I'm here for you. And not only am I with you and here for you, but I'm the one who fulfills them and goes before you. Who's the one who lives out the unpopular mission in its entirety? What did John the Baptist portray? And what did he foreshadow? He foreshadowed Jesus' death. John the Baptist was beheaded for his conviction. Jesus was tortured, mutilated, crucified, and mocked. He fulfilled his most unpopular mission to the cross. Did Jesus fill an unreasonable demand? Of course. The unreasonable demand of living a perfect life and dying for people that never loved him back. He was the one who fulfilled the greatest unreasonable challenge and demand that God laid on him for us in our place so that when we could not, he could say, I've done it for you already. And he was the one who lived out the most unorthodox value. He said, all the sin that comes out of you, I'm going to take it and put it in me so that everything that comes out of me, which is love and goodness and kindness and joy, can be put into you. I don't know about you, but there's no greater exchange than that. There's no greater hope. There's no greater gospel message than Jesus coming and taking our place, our sins, everything, and replacing what we have with what he has. And he simply says, come and follow me. Follow me in my unpopular mission. Follow me in these unreasonable challenges. Follow me in these unorthodox values. Not because you can do it, because that's the life that I live. And that's why following Jesus is impossible as long as Jesus stays impersonal. But as soon as Jesus is personal for you, which I want to invite you into a relationship right now, if that's you, all you need to do, I mean, all you need to do is is develop a relationship and ask him, Lord, I want to get to know you. That will start a journey that will take you into incredible joys and hopes and peace that no item, material, experience, thing in this world can provide. And I hope that not only those of you who have yet to become Christian could experience that, but those of us who consider ourselves Christian could enter into that in a much deeper way. If it were to give us some uh, just next steps, it would just, I just want to make it very simple and use those three things and have us examine ourselves with those three questions and just ask ourselves the question, are you following Jesus's blank, blank, blank? And those three things, are you uh, are you following Jesus' unpopular mission? Are you following Jesus' unreasonable demands? And are you following Jesus' unorthodox value? And hopefully it will bring you into our closer and deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just pray for us and then we'll let you have some time to respond. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for uh, the space that we've been able to meet in. And even though this is our, final Sunday and organized. We praise you for your faithfulness and your goodness. Uh, Lord, we know that there were so many times when we doubted you. There were so many times we were faithless, that we weren't on your unpopular mission, that we were getting bitter and uh, frustrated by your your, um, your your demands, your unreasonable demands. And, and we did not live according to your unorthodox values. But God, you are so faithful and you did not give up on us. You did not give up on your people. And you've been faithful to the end. So we trust in you, God. Lord, we ask that even as we respond, that you would speak to us. Lord, let some people who had never trusted in Jesus before trust in you for the first time. Lord, let us who trust in Jesus already be led deeper into this deeper sense of peace and trust and abandonment to who you are rather than to our own worldly values and dreams and aspirations. Help us to come before you this morning. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.